It's been a while since you've heard from me. In my excitement to put out more pieces since moving back to Northampton, I realized I needed time to conduct my field interviews and research after being away for almost a year. I decided to pause episode releasing and concentrate on building connections and trust with my subjects. I'm excited to say that this summer I have some important and eclectic narratives to share with you all. Today, I'd like to draw your attention to a local troublemaker, or at least that's what he refers to himself as. His name is Craig Della Pena, and if you've heard his name but aren't exactly sure from where, it's probably because he's everywhere. Anyone I speak to knows Craig Della Pena. You may know him as a realtor from Murphy Realtors, or interacted with him in relation to his rails-to-trail lobbyism, or perhaps you stayed at his bed and breakfast, the Sugar Maple Trailside Inn in Florence. He's a man of many hats, but the one he wears most consistently is that of a person who loves the Pioneer Valley and wants to build local networks while still maintaining the integrity of the rail and industrial history. In the past, his work has consisted mostly of purchasing old rail corridors, selling them to land trusts as a way to lobby for them to become rails to trails. And he worked with local officials to prevent those areas from just becoming new development. Now as a realtor, though he continues a lot of that work still, his niche is selling houses along rail trails or greenways. And as he says, if you're a realtor without a niche, you're probably not doing well. He's gone through many professions, though his passion for everything local has always remained. Since first speaking to him over eight months ago, I haven't been able to go around Northampton without running into a corridor or or bridge that had his marking on it. We've mostly communicated remotely over the phone or computer, and though we only met in person once, I've never known anyone more passionate about the Pioneer Valley. His knowledge, proficiency in storytelling, and care for the local people rings so clearly in our conversations. And what makes him a, quote, troublemaker? During a Zoom call in September, I recall seeing a stack of books in his office. When I asked what they were, he told me they were multiple copies of the same book that he was giving out to city leaders to prove to them that reducing parking in downtown areas and increasing walk and bikeability actually promotes economic development for local businesses in the area, going against what the city's leaders thought. Even though his job did not require that effort, and never does, he goes out of his way to, quote, stir up trouble. His passion comes home with him even after the workday. His home, just eight feet from the bike path in Florence, functions as a bed and breakfast. Those staying in the area can enjoy the proximity to the path, but also learn greatly from Craig and his wife Kathy's breadth of knowledge and care. Craig is an activist, a teacher, and a true visionary. He never leaves a question of mine unanswered, often giving me a detailed story with a lesson he learned to answer it. 
only one of my questions that remains is, when does Craig de la Pena ever sleep? Listen to what he has to say to find out. Based on your bio, I mean, you have a lot of experience working for railroads, right? Where did that interest first come in? Um, I guess when I was, when I was very small, my, uh, my older brother used to, I was telling someone this story the other day, he used to build model airplanes. And I was more interested in trains. And so um, the nearest store to get models like that way back when was in Chicopee, Massachusetts. I grew up in Holyoke. Oh, cool. Um, and so I'd ride my bike seven miles to this store when I was like, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And I'd get models. And then, um, and then later in life, I had the opportunity to, um, to work for a transloading company that would uh, bring in rail cars of material, uh, specialized commodities. And we'd uh, unload them and then load them onto trucks when time was right when the end users needed them. And I, I, I was actually uh, elevated positions there and I was, uh, became the manager of the facility and, and actually um, marketed rail freight and by identifying commodities coming across the continent on trucks that would be better served to be put back onto the railroads. So effectively, taking trucks off the road from mm. New England. And so I did that for about 12 years and operated or planned the startup and operated two of the largest railroad owned transloading facilities in the Northeast. Oh. And, and I have a background in railroad history too, mm. where I would, uh, you know, explore old rail lines and, and, um, uh, you know, some rail fans would be interested in the train going by. Well, I was more interested in where the shiny rail had like a, a spur track off, and then that led to rusted rails. And where did the rusted rails go? And then they stopped, the rails stopped being there. And, and so I was, I was more interested in the, the history of all these old places. And, um, and, and one of my customers at the transloading facility, the last one I ran, was a guy that used to take obsolete topographic maps, pallets of them, and then bring them into our facility. And we'd send them out to paper converters to be transformed into stationary. Wow. Like geolopes, topolopes, envelopes. And, um, and I had a book on my, this was in February of 1994. And I had a book on my desk called The Lost Railroads of New England. And he picked up the book and he said, you know, they're, they're taking a lot of these old rail lines and converting them to bike and hike trails. I said, yeah, I know that. I'm a member of Rails to Trails Conservancy. And he said, so am I, but they've never written a book like this. And he said, my main line of business is not the topo maps. 
my main line of business is I take, uh, I'm a publisher, I'm a regional publisher of uh, outdoor recreational titles and guidebooks and maps. And he said, if you were to write a manuscript about all these places here in New England with a special bent towards the history of the places. And I said, yeah, I could do that. Um, and, and so we went out, we actually did it a little bit differently than a standard book. We had a, a odometer based mileage guide of everything you'd come along and see that was related to railroad archeology span or railroad history. And, and so that was different. And so the, the first book came out, was a big hit and they put me under contract to write another book about New Jersey and another book about New York. And, um, and, and so that's how it all started. It was all about the railroad history of these pathways and how the railroad impacted the communities. And then I started getting involved in the politics of mm -hmm. how these pathways did or did not get built. And, and why was that? And there were people opposed to them because they didn't want strangers coming near their house or possibly devaluing their house by having all these people biking or walking by. And, um, and started organizing little friends groups that were um, friends of the trail to teach them how to overcome opposition. And still largely about the history of these places, but I was, um, I was later hired. Well, there was a guy who was buying my books by the case, the New England book, by the case <laughs> the, uh, at trailheads in Eastern Mass. And he'd say, here, you can have this book. This book tells the history of the old railroad here. It's not just a cute path in the woods going nowhere. This actually uh, had a big impact on our community. And so we had to go find that guy, track him down and <laughs> interview him, talk to him. And it turns out he was actually a a member, a big donor, actually, to Rails, the Trails Conservancy. And so he got me a job interview with the president of Rails to Trails at his mother's house on Cape Cod, uh, Woods Hole, right on the ocean, big 5,000 foot 20s era, big shingle style house. And after a five hour job interview, he hired me be the point person in New England to, you know, raise the level of membership, um, to uh, parachute into all the wars, let's say, and teach, teach pro-trail forces how not to lose. And so that's, that's what I've been doing actually for the last over 20 years. Uh, work for Rails to the Trails as a formal lobbyist in all the New England states for seven years. And then um, they scaled out of the region. And so I became a realtor after that, and specializing in the sale of houses near rail trail. Mm. That's when all those anti said that they would never be able to sell their house. But we grew up in Holyoke, Kathy and I grew up in Holyoke. Uh, I lived in, in Winchester, Mass, in Eastern Mass for about four years in the late 1970s. Nope, this is, uh, came, I came back and never wanted to live anywhere else but here. 
And it was only later in life I discovered why this place is so special. And it's, um, it's, it's twofold. Most mountain ranges in North America run north-south. Mm -hmm. Here it runs east-west. Mm -hmm. Different. And it puts a different karma on things. Um, and it puts up like a wall between Hampshire County here on the north side of the mm -hmm. east mountain range. In Holyoke, on the south side of the mountain range, people in Hampshire County have no idea at all about Holyoke. And, you know, I would, I would lead bike tours in Holyoke for the local museum, pointing out, you know, the ghost of industrial past district and the grand houses in the highlands. And, and but Holyoke is a special place. Um, the, the other aspect of why this place is special is that there are actually more land trusts in Massachusetts than anywhere else in the United States, except for California, which is 20 times larger than Massachusetts. And what is the successful recipe? What's the secret sauce for all these land trusts here? It's all about local conversations. If you're in a place that has like the Trust for Public Land or the Nature Conservancy as a big presence in your area, that's only because there are no local land trusts. So the big land trusts with a sort of, let's say, top-down driven conversation, they have to come in. The, uh, in the case of Massachusetts here, there's a more balanced conversation, a more successful conversation that is neighbor to neighbor, as opposed to the outside big organization with a top-down driven conversation. That, that conversation leads to more success here when you have a more equal conversation. What about the culture in Massachusetts allows it to be that way? I think, I think it goes back generations because the idea of parkland or open space actually started here when uh, the trustees of reservations, TTOR, they have a big presence here in the valley, you know, even in Holyoke, they have the Dinosaur Footprint Park. TTOR got st started as an advocacy organization to cajole, to convince, to push along the state government into creating parks and to embarrass them into doing so. They, they created their own land trust. They actually uh, started buying big Brahmin estates on the North Shore, Essex County, Massachusetts. And then they started being buying big parcels of land that may have had some kind of interesting geological feature, geographic feature. And, um, and the state did start building state parks, the state government. And so trustees of reservations kept on going. They kept on buying interesting lands. And it's sort of the idea spread till today. You know, we look at Hadley, Massachusetts, not far away. It's got a couple of claims to fame. The longest town green in the United States is in Hadley. Really? Yes. And then the 
it's got more acres of APR land than any other community in Massachusetts. And on the spectrum of say, preserving land, maintaining the historic feel of a neighborhood or a town to developing new properties and um, slowly changing and allowing change to happen within a community, where would you say you lie between those two sort of extreme points? I'd say I'm probably an extremist mm -hmm. in that it goes back to Holyoke. Holyoke, the wealthiest community in Western New England, fell on hard times when all the mills started to close. And actually there were fires in Holyoke. Holyoke was the fire capital of the United States. You're so surprised. Yeah. Holyoke had, when I was growing up in the 70s, there were more fires in Holyoke than anywhere else in the United States. There wow. were a whole spectrum of fires from, let's say, crazy arson to arson for hire to bad electricity, spontaneous combustion, the whole spectrum of why fires started but there were actually more municipally sanctioned demolitions in Holyoke in an 18 month window in the 1990s than there were fires the entire decade of the 70s. Huh. And you say, oh my God, how did that happen? Well, the best and brightest when they left, when they graduated from Holyoke High School, they left town and never came back. That meant people left behind were not the best and brightest and they're running the city and i like to say that they are 20th century people and then there are 21st century people i was invited in 1998 to write a book about holyoke as one of those cheap coffee table books the uh pictures and captions pictures and captions you name the place city or town there will be a book out of that series, thousands of titles. This one's called Images of America Holyoke with its trademark sepia covered, sepia tone cover on the front page. But that book was a little bit different than the regular genre of that. When I, I don't know if you remember a movie called The Sixth Sense about a little boy who saw all the dead people. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of like that in that I don't see people. But when I go to Holyoke, I see all the missing buildings. And the book was all about the missing buildings. Most yeah. of them have lots of pictures of famous people in the city or town. And mine didn't. It was mostly just missing buildings. Yeah. After that, I was invited, you know, I was, here I am, a political organizer. I'm going into pressure-packed places. I was invited to organize a group called Save Historic Holyoke. My Holyoke book was in the top 10% of sales nationwide in that genre of the cheap coffee table books. You don't quit your day job for these kind of books, but they're like, don't. Door opens. Mm -hmm. Invited to 
organize a group called Save Historic Holyoke. Holyoke, with all the municipally sanctioned demolitions in the 90s, with all the fires years before, looked like Dresden, Germany in 1946, mm -hmm. after firebombed by Allied bombers in 1945, but all cleaned up. All the bricks cleaned up and the debris pulled away, but still grid, grid pattern streets, but nothing there. Large swaths of Hoyoke look like, still to this day, they look like Dresden. But we went in to stop those demolitions. And it took us four years. I put together a group, took us four years. And there are still two mayors, ex-mayors of Holyoke that still refuse to talk to me because they hate me so much. What I do is very edgy. I enemies, right? Even in my rail trail world, who could be a I was actually accosted three times, had a lawyer threaten to destroy the quality of my life if I continued to go and locals how to build a rail trail and overcome up <laughs> but this was this was professional grade stuff in Holyoke and and you know we would buy buildings to prevent them from being torn down mm. for 10 or 12 or 15 thousand dollars buying a complete wow. building to keep it from being torn down so we'd then sell it to someone who would promise not to tear it down, but to fix it up over time. And, that, and, um, and we got involved in the politics. Northampton has a demolition delay ordinance because I went forward, created a website and got involved in that. So you can't just tear down a building willy nilly in Northampton. You could before, same thing in Holyoke. We created a demolition delay ordinance in Holyoke. Mm -hmm. First significant building that comes forward to, to see if the historical commission in Holyoke would allow the demolition was a building, it was a five-story building with a terracotta facade. Every floor was butcher block floor with a center drain. It was next to the railroad siding behind on Main Street. It was called Swift's Meatpacking Plant. Mm -hmm. Sides of beef came in, and, and so it was a butcher place okay, years ago. Um, but then it fell into disuse. There was, um, it was vacant. There was a guy who was actually an antique dealer in Northampton who came forward to buy it. It was his intention to, to safely dismantle it, not just tear it down, but to dismantle it because the terracotta facade was a bas relief of a bull's head on the top floor. And put it on eBay. He will dismantle the building, putting it onto your trucks. $300,000. He had it under contract. The only thing he needed to get was a demolition permit from the city. Mm. He said, you can't do that without going to the historical commission. And that guy got turned down. He then sold it to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, got flipped seven times. 
Then a piece of the building terracotta fell and hit the street. And then the, uh, the mayor said, we're going to tear it down. Too late. The building's gone. It's a threat to public health. So they called in a demolition company out of Springfield called Associated Building Records. And they come in and something went wrong. Whole wall fell and hit a neighboring auto body shop, seriously injuring the owner oh and the demolition workers. We wanted to buy that building. The owner of the building is a guy still around the area, is a bottom dweller commercial developer. We wanted to pay 15 for the building, ended up selling it for $7,500 despite us. He sold it to the beautiful people antique dealer in Northampton, who then tried to sell it to the Houston guy who was going to make it into a steakhouse restaurant. And then you know the rest of the story. But it gets better because. Part of the reason of the disinvestment in Holyoke, the stupidity of the 20th century leadership, there is this big canal walk, which is a rail trail, industrial yeah. along the canals, the Holyoke Canal Walk. You've probably been to all the beautiful things down there now. Well, when this, all this to do took place, this was probably in 2002. And, and so the canal walk wasn't really the municipal government really didn't see it as an important thing. Mm -hmm. But all there was probably $20 million back then sitting on the sidelines waiting for the city to start to build the canal walk so that they could then invest in their properties. Um, two weeks after the guy got killed and the, and the wall fell, the old Bullshead building, there was a 25% design hearing for mass DOT. When they, when they have any kind of transportation delivery, don't forget I live and breathe transportation delivery, there is a process and at the 25% of the project's design, they have to have a public hearing. It just happened to be two weeks after this guy got killed where they were gonna have a design hearing for the canal walk. And so I go to that and I know everybody in DOT they know me because I'm a troublemaker. And they know when I'm showing up at a hearing like this, they must, they know that it's going to be not pretty. And so I went there and I started pounding my fist on the table, charging the city with gross incompetence for being 10 years in on a linear park, a sidewalk by another name. They couldn't get the effing sidewalk built all this money's on the sidelines waiting for it to get built so people will feel safe to invest in their properties. And here we are two weeks after somebody gets killed because of the disinvestment in Hoyo and the continuing mindset, mindset of demolishing things as opposed to preserving and improving things. This is very, very important. This, this rail trail, this bike path, this walking trail, this enhanced sidewalk needs to get built. You need public sector investment to give the private sector courage to invest their money into big things. Change mm -hmm. little trail is not that much money in the scale of 
rehabbing huge old mill complexes. After that, the project, the canal lock project was expedited and started getting built quickly. The big thing that happened after that, there was a derelict mill that was torn down and the biggest computer server farm in of east of the Mississippi River was built in Holyoke. And it was because the Holyoke, um, Holyoke Gas and Electric, and I won't talk about that war with you, it takes too long. But the this building was sited between two canals. First level canal here had water pouring through, cooling the servers, making electricity there also, going through, going to a another level canal below. And this thing is huge. Doesn't employ a lot of people, but oil, gas, and electric is a fiber optic line down there. So it's attracting all these high-tech firms and all this investment is coming in, but people had to die in order, in order for that to take place. And that's a sort of a sad but true truism that people need to die in order for transportation delivery to have to make the streets safer, you have to die. Somebody has to die in order for things. So that's where I am. I am a radical in terms of getting historic preservation. Yeah. New Jersey. This isn't some piece of junk Midwest community. These are places where the big mills employed thousands of people who made living wages, who lived in modest houses on clean grid pattern streets with sidewalks and porches. That sort of old design is the design of the future. We're not going to be building 5,000 foot houses on two acres of land as far as the eye can see. That is not normal. Normal in New England People come here, they expect to be stunned by our beautiful communities with close houses. This is what we live by. And it's where everything is historic here. It's not new. Everything here has character. So this all ties together. Mm -hmm. You see it now? When I got told I could have an office five doors from my house, and and work as much as or as little as I wanted and do as much rail to trail stuff too as a little sideline business. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm with the Murphy's Realtors is because as a lobbyist, I burrow my way into organizations. And the, in this case, the transmitter of information to all realtors across the state is called MLS PIN. Multiple Listing Service Property Information Network. That's a sophisticated website that feeds not only the realtors, but Zillow and other third-party sites. Mm -hmm. David Murphy's on the board of directors of MLS PIN. And I wanted to be able to have a specialized search capacity so I can add in houses that may be near a rail trail so I can search for them automatic search goes up each night looking for those addresses and comes down blank. And when they hit, I'll send someone in to, to sell the house because that house has owned or bought 
part of the dead railroad corridor in that community. And I've also got, when we create a listing, I got a, a radio button on the back end that says near a bikeway. So now all realtors across the state, oh yeah, that bike path's next door or, or it's a quarter of a mile away or six blocks away. We're gonna click near a bikeway. And so that has changed the concept of, because we don't put anything on there that's bad. Like the roof is about to leak. The boiler is about to explode. No, we only put good things on that particular, those particular fields. Mm -hmm. so I've institutionalized the idea of living near a bikeway is good. It's because- We've always talked about bikes. Obviously that is your big, interest and that's a big part of who you are i'm curious though we haven't actually spoken about where where that comes from where well, it began um well way 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 back when when i was like eight years old i used to build model trains my older brother used to build model airplanes i built model trains and i would bike to the, the model railroad store Seven miles away when I was like 10 or 12 years old. Now, it, you know, there wasn't much traffic back then. It was, it was safe biking. So I biked to all those places. And then um, I ended up working for the railroad. I think I told you that. Yeah. And, um, and, and then I was invited to write a series of books about old rail lines and then their conversion to bike and hike trails. And so we did that for several years, doing research on that and going to all these places every single weekend and biking every trail. Well, I guess my question was more like, what to you is so important and fascinating about getting on a bike and being able to access a real trail? And where did that begin? Uh, well, that, the first bike path we ever rode on actually as part of the research for the first book, first day we rode on a rail trail was in April of 1994. And we biked past this dilapidated house that later became our house. We bought the house. Did you ever go to the website? The, yeah. For the bed and breakfast? If you go there, you'll know, link um, to Home and Garden Television film, came to film the renovation of our house. I didn't watch it. Yeah, you go there, you go to the bed and breakfast website, sugar-maple-in.com, and then click on the button that says about the house, and then there's a link to the home and garden television video. I had the pleasure of visiting his home back in March. I met Craig at his office near the Florence Pie Bar, and we walked the single block to get there. A stone wall lines the front of the pistachio green home, and on the left-hand side, a sign reads, Sugar Maple Trailside Inn. At the time of my visit, Craig and Kathy were not having guests due to the pandemic, but since May, have been open for reservations. In front of the house is an old bicycle with forsythia in the basket, string lights running along the frame. At nighttime, you can see this illuminated we walked onto a covered porch, very quintessential New England, with railroad memorabilia along the walls. 
Thelma, their Scottish terrier, greeted us at the door. The house is quaint and warm with simple, purposeful decorations reminiscent of New England's history. And all throughout are accents of the railroad, whether it be sign from a railroad company or parts from a train. And just a few feet from the window, the movement of pedestrians on the bike path. Everything about his home, the experience of walking from Murphy Realtors to the house and seeing the pedestrians and bikers just feet away, made the whole experience so alive. And everything about it screamed Craig. I was stunned. It really wasn't until this visit that I realized that all of this, everything he's passionate about, everything that he does is not just his career. It is what he breathes. It's who he is. My understanding of him became so clear on this cloudy March day in Florence. Really beautiful rooms. It's cute, huh? And your choice for the name, Cedar Hill and Haydenville. Well, Cedar Hill is the front room because it faces down towards New Haven. Oh. New Haven's Railroad's Cedar Hill yard was the last yard before New Haven. Didn't know that. And then that. Haydenville is just along the way, uh, the next community up the line in Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of the Antis lived in, in the war, in the Williamsburg Rail Trail War. Mm -hmm. That's why we're here, because I would challenge Antis to come and stay at our bed and breakfast. <laughs> so we'll go out this way. Sure. Thelma's waiting for us. We have a cat named Louise, Thelma and oh, Louise. Thelma and Louise. Yes, little black cat. That's so sweet. After you, Mary. Thank you. Hello, Thelma. You're so beautiful. The house is built in 1865. Mm -hmm. In fact, this house, this house, not that house, but five others' houses on the street mm -hmm. were built by the sewing machine factory. The oh, house wow. department here. So they said, stay with us, don't go off to the war. We know the Army's here recruiting soldiers, but we don't want you to go. You're the mm. institutional memory. Mm. Stay with us. We'll build you all, nine of you, nine houses. And so there are nine one-and-a-half-story wow. farmhousey-style houses on mm -hmm. the street. Oh, my gosh. And this was the worst one when we bought it. You really? Couldn't, you couldn't you even see. can't tell now. Now it's the best one. <laughs> And it was all because it sits next to the trail. I, I came upon this place at 11 o'clock while coming back from a, a lecture I had in New Hampshire where I got beaten up particularly well by an anti-path extremist who hated the idea. Good girl, Thelma. Good girl. Who hated the idea of the trail coming to their neighborhood. Oh, God. And I knew I had to graduate from just talking the talk, shall we say, to mm -hmm. actually walking the walk, where we, uh, I had to buy a house next to the rail trail, mm -hmm. somewhere. Where were you living at that time? In Agawam. Oh, Agawam, the first yeah. zip code. Yeah, 01001, that's right. The other claim to fame is, it's the only community in Massachusetts that has no downtown, only city huh. that has no downtown. Come on, Thelma. No, you're not going to be eating that. Come on, whatever it is, not good. <laughs> Look at this, all these kids. This is going to set her off. 
kids doing oh. things that, that don't look normal. Oh. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. This is Thelma. Thelma is our tan Scottish Terrier. Yes. Scottish Terriers don't shed. They got to get a haircut. The what? She's walking with me, yes. A walkathon? So I stumbled upon this house 11 o'clock at night. I got off the highway and I'm driving around here and I stumbled and I saw the for sale sign on it and came mm -hmm. here the next day. You couldn't even see the house from the street. It was totally blocked off with greenery of all kinds uh -huh. and the shade, everything. And even on the trail side, it was completely blocked in. Uh -huh. And uh, it was run down. And so we... Uh, jumped into a multiple offer situation, as they say, and we prevailed by agreeing to not close for six months and give the owner six months to clean out everything. Wow. How did you know that it was the right choice? Because it was next to the trash. And you weren't going to wait a little bit to see if another house would come along? There's no other place like this. As close as that house. Because at that time, I had uh, written three books on this subject. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and been, I've been on hundreds and hundreds of trails mm -hmm. and there's very few houses that were um, that were next to the trail lots of times nobody would want to build a house near the trail a railroad so what happened here was the house was built first then I the see. railroad came through where it had to come mm -hmm. through which was right next to the house so that's how that house ended up. And back then I was working for Rails the Trails, but I was much heavier. I've lost about 75 pounds since I left them. But this is way back when. But that's um, the first bike path we ever rode on. We rode past the house we would end up buying because I got involved in the politics of them. I was always involved in the history of them. But then I went to my first public meeting in November of 96, I believe. And I, it was in uh, Southampton, Massachusetts, because I heard there was a to-do and people were opposed to the trail. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't imagine why people would be opposed. So I went and watched the meeting. I just sat there and watched with my jaw dropped that people were passionately opposed. And so that's where I found my voice. My brother, who was 10 years older than me, he was a wow. club debating champion in high school. Matter of fact, the state debating champion for the entire state of Massachusetts. So when I became in high school and I got to be that age, I too was going to be on the speech club. But I flunked out because I was too shy. I couldn't speak. I can't imagine that for you. <laughs> I know. I know. It sounds so weird. <laughs> You know, I've given over 1,200 lectures now in 21 states, but it didn't, didn't always be like that. I was very shy, and I was mostly interested in the history of these dead railroads. And then I started getting involved in the politics. And the politics is very important if you look at it this way. The indicator species of life in a community 
is the number of bicycles and pedestrians you see. If you don't see those uses as prevalent in your village center or your downtown, that means the transportation delivery by DOT at a local or state level has over-engineered everything and made it more centric for cars. So building out the rail trail network, because they're everywhere here, they're not like obscure, forgotten, piece of junk, coal mine, branch lines, or other extraction industries, where the dead railroads are here in southern New England, or at least within 125 miles of us, are always going to village center downtown locations. You know, I grew up in Holyoke, which was the wealthiest place in western New England. Now it's not. And the big mills are coming back to life. And right next to them are dead railroad corridors that must become linear parks known as rail trails in order for the Renaissance to take place. It's to me, building rail trails is not so much about the bike, but it is about the community development aspect of converting dead railroads. It's not so much about the bike. Bike is a tool to get things to slow down in your community and make it possible for local businesses to survive. That's when I go into places, I break conventional wisdom. I break people's conventional wisdom and it, when it shatters and hits the floor or doesn't leave a stain on the floor, but they never, they will never look at a thing that I'm talking about the same way again. They'll never look at dead railroads the same way again. Next time on 413 Ethnography, I interview house painter, gardener, and dear friend Alice Kane. A piece almost two years in the making about a garden over 50 years in the making. It takes you through a few seasons of Alice's plants, spirituality, and art, as well as our developing friendship. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I hope you can join us.